Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm here with Ben, and we're sitting across from Heather Morris. Welcome, Heather. Hello, thank you. So you're here with Silke's Journey, and this is billed as the sequel to The Tattooist of Auschwitz from last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Silke is a character that we've come across before. Um, keen-eyed readers of The Tattooist might remember her, but do you want to tell us a little bit about Silke and about Silke's Journey? Absolutely, and, uh, and one thing I'd like to point out because it's been pointed out to me by other readers, that this story actually can stand alone. You don't have to have read The Tattooist to to be able to read this story and follow it. But yes, Silke, Silke Klein, 16 years of age, when taken into Auschwitz-Birkenau, survived there for two and a half years as, there's only one word for it, the sex slave of the Commandant of Birkenau. I call it out for what it is in her, her story only to be sent to a Siberian gulag for prostituting herself to the enemy. And at the age of 18, just turned 19, she finds herself in a Siberian gulag. And she was there for 10 years. Volkuta, one of the coldest places on earth. And she survived. It's a fascinating story. And um, this has touched, I mean, the tattooist of Auschwitz has touched so many readers in so many languages, in so many territories, in so many corners of the planet, and you've been touring the entire mm-hmm. globe, um, meeting them all. Um, and it all comes back from 2003 with yeah. a man named Lale, who, um, who came into your life. Should you start with that story, how, 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 you, how he came into your world and what your first impression of this man was? I had coffee with a friend. I hadn't seen her for many months. And she casually said to me, I have a friend whose mother has just died and his father has asked him to find somebody he can tell a story to. That person can't be Jewish. You're not Jewish. Do you want to meet him? As casual as that. That was the the criteria, not Jewish. Not Jewish. Yeah, he was adamant about that. And I did. I met him the following week. And uh, that very first meeting... I was greeted by this 87-year-old man who couldn't even look at me. He was so grief-stricken, his wife having died only a few weeks earlier, and he wanted to join her. Mm. He grilled me about the fact that I wasn't Jewish because that was what he wanted, and that was quite funny, hearing him asking me whether there was a synagogue in the town that I grew up in, or maybe what about the town next to it and the town next to it. And I passed because (laughs) my knowledge, sadly, from my small town New Zealand education lacked very much to do with the Holocaust. But yes, it was through my three-year relationship and friendship with Lully that he casually said to me one day, did I tell you about Silka? And I said, no, who was she? And he said, ah, she was this tiny little thing. She was this small, beautiful girl in Birkenau, and she saved my life. And she was the bravest person I ever met and he would wag his finger at me and say, not the bravest girl, the bravest person. And then he'd go off on a tangent, and I kept bringing him back to her. Mm. I got to hear what Gita said about her in a tape she made for the Shoah Foundation, and I knew early on that this was a story I was going to pursue. And that's why I just teased you about her in The Tattooist. Mm. I gave you a little hint of what was to come with this amazing young girl. I mean, it's, there could be no higher praise from uh, Lale himself, uh, mm. a man who 
now without spoiling too much of the tattooist, um, is a man who survives in Austria's Birkenau um, as uh, working as the tattooist, the tattooer, and he meets everyone. You know, he, mm. he touches so many people in that horrible, horrible place. And this is the bravest person he meets. Exactly. And, and yes, he did get to, to meet many, many people because part of his role being the tattooist, well, the greatest benefit from that role was that it gave him freedom of movement. So he could be anywhere in Auschwitz and Birkenau and not get challenged by the SAS. Or if he did, he just identified himself. And so, yes, he got to know her because she was a friend of Gita's. And yes, she saved his life, just like he told me. Um, from what I understood from the author's note of Tattooist, um, Lale, I mean, you mentioned that he, he didn't enter the journey of, of, of telling his, his story um, until after his wife passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, there's a cautiousness about revealing his story as a survivor, um, perhaps for a kind of fear of having been seen as someone who has collaborated in to su- to survive in the place of others. Um, did you was that the case with him? And and did did telling his story perhaps changing change his mind a little bit? Well, you're kind of partly right and partly wrong. The main reason he hadn't spoken to anybody about it for nearly six decades was because Gita wouldn't let him. Mm. Gita was the one who said, we do not talk about that time in our lives. She was a closed book. And so, yes, he was never going to talk about his role and about his love for her while she was alive. In terms of him being a collaborator, he did consider there was a possibility that that accusation may come. However, he followed that up with me by saying, if anybody ever says that to you, you bring them to me. He said, I wasn't. I didn't. I did what I did to survive. And, you know, with this book now sold in 53 countries and so many people I've met, not one person has even hinted that they see him as being a collaborator. There's no willingness there because you're under the threat of death constantly and I don't think any of us really understand what that would be like. We can't and I hope we never do understand. And it's something that really gives an added potency to Silke's story in particular because, well, as you say, she was the sex slave of the Birkenau commandant. Yeah. And then that's something that she's, like, not to spoil anything that happens in this book, but that was something I was really struck by is how she was still punished for that afterwards as if she could have willingly consented. Yeah. Yeah. Look, she was faced like Lully and like so many others, what I describe as choiceless choices. Mm. Live, die. It was as simple as that. She chose to live. And as far as Lully was concerned, how she chose to live by submitting herself made her the bravest person and that she then confronted that commandant of Birkenau to save him when that could have brought about her demise. How dare she ask the commandant? In an instant. Yes. Yeah. He could have killed her with his bare hands, Lully said, because she was a tiny little thing. She was five foot nothing. (sighs) And I've seen photos of Schwarzhuber. He was six foot plus. That's horrifying to mm. even picture. Um, there's, I can imagine two really large challenges in, in writing these stories. Um, and I want, I want to see if you can pick them apart. Okay. <laughs> because I, it, it boggles my mind what you've achieved in these books and, and how many readers you've managed to touch with them. Um, 
the first, I guess, is where do you take poetic license to join the dots of this factual story that you've researched so well? How the heck do you even come at that <laughs> to make to connect this, these historical events to make a fictional narrative arc? With Tattooist, it was very easy. I was telling Lully's story and Lully gave it to me. Mm. And it was not the story of the Holocaust, it was a Holocaust story. Mm. And so I found that very easy once I got into my head, hang on a minute, I'm going to be challenged here. And uh, as Lully and every survivor I ever met, and I was privileged to meet many, they would say to me, not two of us experienced time in Auschwitz-Birkenau the same. And so everyone's story is going to be unique. Mm. I told Lully's story. Now, I didn't have that um, privilege in, with Silka because she died in 2004, and so I never got to meet her. But what I did do was research where she was in that Siberian gulag and used a professional research from Moscow. So I got to understand exactly where it was she spent 10 years. And they also provided me with testimonies of women who were in that very gulag. So I know what life was like there by reading all these other women's stories. And then we did get the facts about Silke's life there, what she did in that gulag, how she survived by being made a nurse and being trained to be a nurse. So she was inside, and that would have given her a huge uh, extra element of being able to survive, not being subjected to the elements, which were pretty horrific. Yeah, to I mean, say, it's the coldest place on earth. Th this mm. is this is the second part of this, the two prong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, how 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 do you develop and take a reader through a narrative arc, the ebbs and flows of a novel, um, if you set it in a place, um, or start to finish, where drama is lived at the absolute extremity, twenty four seven. How do you how do you how do you step us through a novel <laughs> in this place? Well, you look at other people's experiences being there. Mm. And in my case, I go to Slovakia and I meet people mm. who knew Silka. She'd lived back there for 50 years with the man that she met. I'm going to give away a spoiler here that she meets in that camp and then spent the next 50 years with. And you talk to people who knew her. Sadly, we can't identify any family members of hers. But I've sat in the very apartment where she lived Mm. and spoken to neighbours who knew her for 50 years. And so I now have a picture of who this young girl became as a woman mm. and, and the positive attitude that she carried out of this hellhole. Yes. And by yeah. taking that and then learning about how she lived her life back in Slovakia, helping others, unable to have her own child, how she related to other people in the apartment building where she lived for 50 years... The, the women who I met there who had been born in that apartment and she was now a woman in her 50s and had known Silka all her life and how she treated her as a little girl. You take that and then you take what went on in that gulag and then you weave and imagine what life was like for her based on the reality of others and what person she became when she left there. And I actually didn't have too much trouble doing that in the end. The two <laughs> kind of just melted together. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think the thing with historical fiction is I always think it's impossible to completely and accurately capture any kind of record, any kind of historical event. You're only going by other people's perceptions. Yeah. So I think it's most important for historical fiction to capture the emotional 
resonance of that moment, how someone felt. And sorry, that was my chair, it's <laughs> just given away. Um, and what was I saying? And with Silke's journey, I think, with any Holocaust story, so much of the history is compromised anyway because, mm -hmm. you know, these people's stories were, these people were obliterated and so were their official histories. So any kind of act of storytelling to restore her name, I think, is, is more to the point than, you know, just telling a straight story. Yeah, you're, you're individualising it, but in doing that, this is the story of so many others. I'm just giving you one face and one name to what, in fact, was the story of in, in the gulag of hundreds of thousands of women. Mm. And that whole notion of history and memory, you know, where do the two sort of waltz and step and when do they pull apart? Well, they do. And you find those little gems where you find the research, you find the person who totally confirms the part where they are dancing arm in arm. And when they pull apart, you have to say to yourself, well, you know what, whose story am I telling? Well, I'm telling the story of the person who gave it to me and I'll go down that path with continuing it. Yes, you can never tell a historical fiction story accurately because you can't get access to everything. And even if you could, you would hear different stories. I've got a son and a, I mean, a son-in-law and a daughter who are police officers in Melbourne and they tell me when they go to accidents or crime scenes that they just hate the fact if there's more than one witness because they're going to tell them more than one version of what went on. Yes. And then they get that same choice can play out not only in history but in the immediate after effects of, of anything. So, you know, sooner or later you've got to make a call and say, I'm writing the book, guys. <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about the reception of Tattooist and, and the enormous... Um, <laughs> pressure? <laughs> well, pressure, but also, the, the I mean, already the vote of confidence that the publishers themselves have put in this book uh, to yes. come, Silga's Journey. Uh, this is going to be absolutely massive. And Olivia and I have both been reading it and we can confirm that it should be massive. It is incredible. Thank you. Um, you've been around the world. Um, you've met a lot of people. I... Uh, last time you were here signing Tattooist, you, you told some very interesting stories about a book launch uh, somewhere in the Balkans. I think it was Slovakia. Slovakia. Could you take us there? Lully's hometown of Krumpaki. <laughs> this is a tiny little village in the eastern part of Slovakia at the base of the Tatra Mountains. Really beautiful. It's quite sort of um, amazing that these incredible, beautiful places exist and they're not known to the, the tourism and the, the world at large. But yes, not one person living in that town of the 7,000 people there actually identifies being Jewish anymore. And I've got an update on what I told you last time too. But I was there when the book was released in Slovakia and they asked could they launch it, not in Bratislava in the capital, but in this little town. And I went, yeah, sure, why not? Well, after we had this civic mural reception when the whole town turned out and all the media were there, they said to me, could we now launch the book? And sure. They handed me a copy of the book and I proudly held it up for the cameras and the video and TV cameras. And then I heard the pop of a champagne cork. And all of a sudden, Stanislav, the deputy mayor of the town, handed me a bottle of champagne. And I looked at my editor who was there with me and I went, this is not going to be a good look. I've got a book in one hand and a bottle in the other. Not in a class. What do I do? Swig out of the bottle? <clears throat> no, all of a sudden... Evita, the mayor, appears in front of me with a silver platter and she holds it in front of me 
And my translator nudged me and said, launch the book. <laughs> How? <laughs> and so Evita took the book out of my hand and she held it over the platter and he pushed my elbow as I poured a bottle of champagne over a book. She had asked her assistant to find out how to launch a book. She couldn't find anything on how to launch a book, but she found out how to launch a boat. I love it. So I love it. <laughs> now, the update on this beautiful town of Krumpaki, which I've subsequently been back to three or four times, and I will be back there in a few months' time to dedicate what we believe will be the second only Holocaust memorial in all of Slovakia, a country that lost 80% of its Jewish population in the Holocaust. Because that small town of Krompaki took the piece of land where the synagogue once stood in the centre of town. It got pulled down because there was no Jewish people there to worship. And that piece of land now has been turned into a memorial park to honour not only Lully, but all Holocaust survivors. It has been made into this amazing garden the feature being this huge Star of David. On each corner point, a tree is planted, and around it, seating for people to come and sit and reflect. The underplanting is still taking place, but last week I got sent a photo of the center of the Star of David. A marble plinth has been placed, and two arms reaching to the sky carved out of solid logs of wood six feet tall, with the fingers entwined, are in the centre of the Star of David, and on each arm is Lully and Gita's tattooed number. Oh, isn't that just... Mm, it's pretty amazing. Mm. A town where not one Jewish person lives anymore feel the need to recognise what was lost from that town. But there was... And, and this is the second... Memorial. Yes, only in, one other Holocaust I mean, memorial that, exists that, in Bratislava. I mean that uh, that just speaks volumes to the different ways, you know, the the, the victims and the winners of history, uh, you know, glorify and memorialise it. I mean, if you go through any small Australian town or New Zealand town, there is the centre of every town yeah. is a World War One memorial, a World War Two memorial, the glorious dead, yes, our fallen heroes. But yes. this country that lost so much, mm. it's nothing. One. <laughs> Just one and now two. And it's in a tiny little town that no one really goes to because it's out of the way. Mm. But um, it, they were, I've been in touch with the people in the Jewish community who do remain in Slovakia. There's a small group in Kosciuszko, which is the second largest city, about an hour away from Krumpaki and Bratislava. And, yeah, we'll make a song and dance about this memorial. Yeah, good. And right. Do you um, think it comes back from that reluctance of people to talk about it? I mean, you mentioned that Gita didn't even want anyone knowing about no. her story. And that's how I've found many people I've met. They're, they're either got you know, in one camp or the other, I want to talk about it or don't mention it. I will not talk about it. And one of the lovely things that the tattooist has done and, and my being able to travel around and meet people in many, many towns and cities, from the London synagogue where I've spoken to places here and in the States, people come up to me and say, my mother was a survivor, my father is a survivor, my grandparents, they're still alive, and they will not talk to me. I've read your book, I need to know what happened to them. How can I make them talk to me? And I have no qualms about looking them in the eye and saying, you're not going to make them. You're not. 
I'm a mum. And do you think for one minute I could look into the eyes of my children and tell them of the horrors I'd experienced? It's not going to happen. So here's a tip. Be like Lully. Go and find a stranger. Mm. Find yourself somebody who's not emotionally connected to your family member. It may or may not work, but give it a go. And I've heard from many people that I've said this to that it has worked. And I suggest they find it. If they can't find anybody themselves, just ring up a publisher, any publisher, and say, can you get me a ghostwriter? Somebody who can sit and listen to a Holocaust story. Somebody who's not emotionally connected to that person. And it's happening, folks. It's happening. These amazing survivors now well into their 90s are now opening up. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's literally passing out of living history. Mm. Um, the 40s and, and the 50s. Uh, um, and I'm going to tell you something that my publishers may or may not want you to know. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous. In June, I was in South Africa. And I got Balthier at the, the Frontrick Book Festival. I got back to my hotel room about one o'clock one morning. And yes, I'd had a couple of wines. So I thought, oh, I can't go straight to bed. I'll have a look at some emails. And there was an email I opened up from a man who lives in Canada. And he told me that he was visiting his mother in Tel Aviv in Israel. And on his way, he picked up at Toronto Airport a copy of the book. He got to his mum in Tel Aviv and he showed her the book. And her words were... That must be about Lully and Geisha. This 93-year-old lady took one look at the book cover and knew who the story mm. was about. And she knew because she came from Vranoff, the same town as Geisha. They went to school together. She was a 15-year-old girl who, together with her sister, was on the same train as Geisha. Her number is three apart from Geisha's. Her sister's is two. And she remembers Lully tattooing her arm. And she knew who it was, why it was about them because she caught up with them back in Bratislava after the war before she and her sisters, three sisters who survived, wow. then moved to Israel. I wrote back immediately. We sent a few emails. By the time I moved from Franchuk to Cape Town, I then had rung them in Tel Aviv and spoken to this amazing lady and, and her son who had written to me. Then I contacted my publishers in London and they said to me, well, guess who's not going home then? <laughs> okay, we're getting you a ticket to Tel Aviv from Johannesburg, which I then found myself in. So I kind of complained that I didn't have clothes to be in Israel in the middle of June in the heat of the summer. And, and by the way, I'm running out of knickers, Kate. <laughs> well, when your publisher in London offers to, courier, offers to courier you knickers to your hotel in Tel Aviv, you kind of figure you're going. <laughs> <laughs> Just maybe. And so do we have more <coughs> stories on the horizon? Uh, yeah, pro yes, mm, probably mm. without giving away too much because mm -hmm. we're still working that out. But yes, I spent five days with uh, wow. not only her but m many members of her family, both her two children and adult grandchildren. And now here's a story and a half too. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, and, and you... <laughs> I mean, when, when you began interviewing Lale, you, you didn't even imagine this becoming a novel. No. Uh, um, Let alone a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, do, do you consider you, you're, you're, you're an author now? Is that your vocation? Do you want to keep doing that? Um, is, there, uh, is the tattooist uh, in works to become a film? 
as well? It's not going to be a feature film after all that. Okay. It's going to be a six-part miniseries Great. instead. Great. Love yes. it. Yes, it's in development in the UK right now. And, um, I've seen some copies of the, the, the screenplay. They have a professional screenwriter writing it, so... I've it's just wonderful, and in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be meeting with the producers again in London when I'm there. So okay. exciting. This yeah. is, we're just thrilled for you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Look, we had choice. Two-hour two feature film, six-part miniseries. No contest. miniseries is where, what most people are doing these days. Exactly. So, you know. You've got the content for it. Yes. But also, you have much bigger audiences on television, mm. and it can just run there and sit there forever. And it always drives people back to the books. We find fingers anyway. crossed. Well, um, our appetite has been wet for more, mm -hmm. and um, we are incredibly honoured that you just managed to spend some time with us in a, a very busy schedule. Oh. <laughs> oh, look, I'm just so indebted to you folks and what you do. I mean, you might write the book, but you know the puppy won't sell itself, <laughs> and so I know that the number of people behind the scenes, not just the editors and publishers. But the bookstore owners and you folks who make this happen, you make it happen. So many people have made this happen. It's, it's a word of exactly. mouth phenomenon. And I'm grateful to each and every one of you. Really am. It's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Heather. And My pleasure. You can order your copy of Silk's Journey from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.